you have your Bibles with you or your favorite Bible app, we'll be in Deuteronomy 1 this morning. Deuteronomy 1, that would be your fifth book in your Bible. Or as my son prayed for a minute ago, the 66 Bibles we now have. Yeah, yeah. Six, it, it, language matters, and as a five-year-old, he's learning 66 books in the Bible, so don't think that we're creating a heretic. Uh, 66 books in the Bible. But glad he knows that there are 66. Uh, if you found your spot, we'll be in Deuteronomy 1. We're going to uh, start with verses 5 through 8, and then we're going to skip to verses 26 through 40 right after that. If you found your spot, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word this morning? Again, Deuteronomy 1, 5 through 8, and then 26 through 40. May you hear the words of Christ this morning. East of the Jordan, in the territory of Moab, Moses began to expound this law, saying, The Lord our God said to us at Horeb, You have stayed long enough at this mountain. Break camp and advance into the hill country of the Amorites. Go to all the neighboring peoples in the Arabah, in the mountains, in the west foothills, in the Negev, and along the coast to the land of the Canaanites and to Lebanon. So far, excuse me, as far as the great river of the Euphrates. See, I have given you this land. Go in and take possession of the land the Lord swore he would give to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and to their descendants after them. Verse 26. But you were unwilling to go up. You rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. You grumbled in your tents and said, The Lord hates us. So he brought us out of Egypt to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. Where can we go? Our brothers have made our hearts melt in fear, they say. The people are stronger and taller than we. The cities are large, with walls up to the sky. We even saw the Anakites there. Then I said to you, do not be terrified, do not be afraid of them. The Lord your God, who is going before you, will fight for you as He did for you in Egypt, before your very eyes and in the wilderness. There you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a father carries his son all the way you went until you reached this place. In spite of this, you did not trust in the Lord your God who went ahead of you on your journey in fire by night and a cloud by day to search out places for you to camp and to show you the way you should go. When the Lord heard that what you said, he was angry and solemnly swore, No one from this evil generation shall see the good land I swore to give your ancestors, except Caleb, son of Jephunneh. He will see it, and I will give him and his descendants the land he set his feet on, because he followed the Lord wholeheartedly. Because of you, the Lord became angry with me also and said, You, talking to Moses, you shall not enter it either, but your assistant Joshua, son of Nun, will enter it. Encourage him, because he will lead Israel to inherit it. And the little ones that you said would be taken captive, captive your children who do not yet know good from bad, they will enter the land. I will give it to them, and they will take possession of it. But as for you, turn around and set out toward the desert along the route to the Red Sea. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. 
this morning. Thank you for the gift of a community that gathers around your word. And we don't gather over it, but we gather under it. And so, Lord, speak this morning. Open our hearts, open our ears, open all of who we are that you might speak clearly and audibly to your people. Because we long to hear from you that our hearts would be encouraged, that we'd be strengthened in our faith and sustained in our faith in order to live out that great commission of your Son. And so, Lord, speak this morning. We offer these things in your name. Amen. You may be seated. If there's one thing I want to set our faces towards this morning, it is certainly the very face of Christ Himself. Uh, Let me just say this. I didn't have this planned in the sermon itself, but I think it needs to be said. There are plenty of times where we can gather at many other places across the nation or across the globe where sermons or songs or gatherings themselves are not faced towards Christ. I hope and I pray this morning that's exactly what we do, that we have our faces set towards Christ our King, that we are attentive to His words, that we are attentive to what He is already doing in and through His church, and that we continue to live out that redemptive mission that He has set us toward. But if there's one thing I don't want us to lose sight of, and that is the very face of Christ. And so as we read through these verses this morning, as we really break apart this passage, I hope we're broken by this passage. And so as we move into Deuteronomy 1, I want to give some background first. I want to carry us from Genesis up into this point, and I'm only going to be brief. What you find early on in Genesis is that here is God creating all things in heaven and on earth. All things, mushrooms, molecules, Milky Way galaxies, everything that exists. And he looks at it and he says it's very good. But then you have the creation of uh, the first two humans, Adam and Eve. And quickly from that, two chapters after the creation of all things, you have creation being undone. You have his human beings being undone and his mission seemed to be thwarted. But not entirely. Yeah, through the disobedience of Adam and Eve, the breaking into our creation, sin and brokenness and pain. But that's not the end of the story. You have this calling out of this character Noah, which his name means rest. And so when you read the story of Noah, you think that this is the one through whom there will be rest. But we find out three chapters later that it's not through him that we find rest. And if you move a couple chapters beyond that into Genesis 12, we have a new character that comes up, Abraham. God calls out to this Abraham, and we think for a second, all right, it is through this person that we find rest, and we find our hope in. It's certainly through him in Genesis 15 and 17 that we have promises given through this Abraham that there will be three major things that come through him. Property. There will one day be a people who have a land. There will be progeny, or we say children. Lots and lots and lots of children through this man. And then lastly, prosperity. This is the riches of being in a relationship with God. But then we quickly find out that Abraham dies. 
but His promises that God makes to him do not. And then if you carry on into the rest of Genesis, you find these stories of Jacob and his sons. And you move on into Genesis 50 and you find out that, well, the story continues. They're in the land of Egypt now. You have the youngest brother of Jacob's clan taking care of the others. But then you jump straight into Exodus 1 and then you have these crying of all these people who are now being multiplied left and right of Israel. And we can't figure out why. That there's no rest for them. But we still see the promises that are being turned up again. And it is through these cries that you find out that another leader is sent, Moses, to restore and rescue this people out of the bondage of the sla- and slavery of Egypt themselves. And so you have through Moses this leadership where he breaks forth all of these people to travel in order to inherit the three promises that were first given to Abraham. And as this people, Israel, journeys beyond the Red Sea, across the wilderness, they land at this place called Mount Sinai. And here's where you have a break in the story. If you were to carry on into Mount Sinai, it begins at Exodus 19, church. That's where they stop. And they do not move until Numbers 10. Exodus 19, all the way to Exodus 40, Numbers 1, sorry, all to Leviticus, and then Numbers 1 through 10, they don't move. They're still on Sinai, receiving the instructions of the Lord, and they're continuing to figure out what it means to be a people that are holy but also a people who are to live out that righteousness of God. And then beyond that, Numbers 10, and you carry through the rest of Numbers, and then here you finally find us at Deuteronomy 1. And where are they? A city or a place known as Moab. Moab. If I usually describe, at least for us in this area, Moab is like the fruitland to Trenton. It's on the outskirts of Trenton. If you had a high enough hill in Fruitland, or at least we could get on top of that granary, and we looked down, you could see Trenton. It's that type of perspective that is happening here in Deuteronomy. They're right on the other side of the river of the Jordan. And they can see over into the land, and it's like in this powerful moment they realize that they're right there about to be a part of the promises that were first given to Abraham. Here's the property that he promised us. Look around us. There's great many progeny. There's children left and right. And we're about to taste of the riches of prosperity. They are at a profound moment in their history. So that's where we land here in Deuteronomy I hope you can feel the excitement because that's definitely bubbling up within them as they're about to move into this land. But let's not get too far ahead of ourselves. Let's begin with verse 5. East of the Jordan, in the territory of Moab. Pause. Stop right there. When we see that word east, we need to think like a Jewish audience. East is a very profound word in their own culture, in their own understanding of Scripture. 
we as Americans, we tend to read too quickly over something like East. Why? Let me give you a little bit more background and move up to where we are. Because East is more than a direction for the people of Israel. We might say North, South, East, West. Well, he lives just east of here. He lives just north of here. When they say east, it's more than just simply a direction. East, for the people of Israel, is also a spiritual position. It's a spiritual position. If you go back to Genesis 3, you'll find this. The Lord banished him, that is Adam, from the Garden of Eden to work the ground of which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. And then if you go a chapter beyond that, where Jody had us a minute ago in the story of Cain and Abel, listen to this. So Cain went out, where? From the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. In both of these accounts, I mean, we could go further than this, but just these two accounts and others, we see that to move one's life east is to move from the very presence of God. It's more than just a direction. It's a spiritual position. And if we were to move into the New Testament to give a little taste of what's happening in the New Testament, we see in the parable of the prodigal son that the father who waits for that long uh, awaited child to return that he might lavish on him love and forgiveness with embrace and even a feast, this child and this people as Israel's represented through this child, they continue to spoil the wealth and the inheritance that has been gifted to them by the Father. Well, how does this directly relate to Deuteronomy 1? Well, we notice that Israel is on the edge of the promised land awaiting the promises that he has given to Abraham. And they're about to move into these promises. And here's the point, back into the very presence of God. Israel to this day is considered the holy land. Why? Because it it is significant as a symbol that this is the very presence of God in the midst of a people. So to move into, over that Jordan and into the land that's promised to them is to move into the very presence of the Lord Himself. And as I said a second ago, a large portion of Israel's history has been building to this moment in Deuteronomy 1. God promised Abraham He'd prosper Israel mainly by giving them property and lots of progeny, lots of children. And here we have in Deuteronomy 1.10, Notice what he says. This is Moses speaking to the people. The Lord your God has increased your numbers. The promises of progeny are everywhere. There's so many children that it's almost impossible to count. This is a direct promise that God gave to Abraham in Genesis 15. When Abraham is taken outside of the tent, you remember what he tells him? Look at the stars of the sky. Your children are going to be as many as these. And here you have in Deuteronomy 1 the promise of progeny. The children are abundant everywhere. It looks like the McEwen household. The Israelites here in this passage, also they can peer over the Jordan. 
And they can see another promise of God waiting for them. That's the very promised land. This stirs up a question that I had when I was working through this passage myself. Have you ever recognized that you were in a defining moment in your life? Have you ever had the eyes to see that moment and realize this is a defining moment and I can see it? In many ways and in many respects, this is a defining moment for the people of Israel. And hang on for a second. We'll tear into that a little bit more here in a second. Let's look at verse 8. See, God is speaking, I have given you this land. And in fact, the Hebrew reads more like this. Look, I have set before your face this land. It's not just a see. The Hebrew reads, what's directly in front of your face? Are you looking deeply at this moment? Are you truly understanding what is in front of you and what you are called to take a part of? And here's the response. And this is where we jump to verse 26. But you were unwilling to go up. You rebelled against the command, the Lord your God. You grumbled in your tents and said, The Lord hates us. So He brought us out of Egypt to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. Where can we go? Our brothers have made our hearts melt in fear. They said, The people are stronger and taller than we. The cities are large with walls up to the sky, we even saw the Anakites there, which would have been this large military people in their day. Here's what he's saying. You rebelled. You saw the promises in front of you. You rebelled. You've grumbled. You've complained. And you've devised and even fabricated false stories. The Lord hates us. He's led us all of these generations before this very defining moment, and now you're saying He hates us. Where do we go from here? And did you notice in the story that here we see that this is more than just a pessimistic moment. This is more than just negativity that's happening. But as I see it, it's more problematic than pessimism. This is a rebellion in their hearts. This inclination to not only to, to not see this moment as profound and to see the Lord's favor, but they don't even want to see it. They've rebelled so much. They're participating in this climactic moment in their history and even being told by God to do this. Go in and take of this land. It's yours. And yet they reject it. And additionally, on top of that, they reject the God who even gave it to them. The Lord hates us. So let me see if I can illustrate this in a very feeble story, a weak story. Last week, I cooked this grand meal. Pork chops, green beans, mashed potatoes. Jade's giving me a stink eye because she's thinking about it. It was good. Rolls, fruit. I mean... A huge meal. And lo and behold, one unnamed child asked if he can have chips with his meal. We've all had that child, haven't we? Maybe we've been that way. 
you see all of this good food and you want chips. Again, a feeble and weak story, but this is somewhat the same situation that Israel has in front of them. In Deuteronomy 1, Israel has cheapened the extraordinary grace and the gift that God has given to them. Look at this feast. Can I have Cheetos? God knows what's best for them. And He also knows it is through this people He's going to bring about His redemptive mission that leads to His Son. And they're wanting Cheetos. Israel has seen God redeem them. He's brought them out of the land of Egypt. God, excuse me, Israel has seen God sustain them through the wilderness this entire time. And yet, they are de- they've been dependent on Him fully for daily food and daily water, and they cannot see it. Israel has even seen God keep them safe. They have been led to the, through the right path to this moment, and Israel misses it. Keep going. Israel has seen God perform miracles through Moses. And guess what? They've forgotten. Israel has even seen God set before their face the land of promise. And they don't recognize this moment. In spite of all this, Israel rebels. Their hearts are unable to witness the good, the wise, and the beautiful gifts from their father. And even in the midst of this rebellion, hear what Moses speaks to them in in verses 29-31. And I said to you, do not be terrified. Do not be afraid of them. This is the people who are already in the land of Israel. The Lord your God who is going before you. He's already there. Don't worry about the next step. He's already there waiting to receive you. He is the one fighting for you as He did for you in the land of Egypt before your very eyes. You could say before your face. And in the wilderness, there you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a father carries his son. All the way you went until you reached this very place. In many ways, a prophet spoke on behalf of God here. His words were the words of God. And in these two verses, 29-31, we don't only hear Moses, His words, but we hear God's words as well. Don't worry. Don't fret. I am going before you. I am waiting on you. I am guiding you to its end. And like a father who carries his son. I love that part of the passage. Here in this portrait and picture that you find of this Father God fighting, waiting, and being for His people, His children. A Father who eases anxieties and takes them upon Himself to give His children rest. A Father who fights and protects His children through wilderness and deserts. A father who guides and directs his children down difficult and dark paths. A father who carries and motivates and encourages his children when they don't know what tomorrow holds. I mean, do you see this beautiful portrait of God as Father? Because we as children, we don't know what tomorrow holds, do we? 
We don't. We don't even know what the next step might look like for us. We don't know of the darkness and the pain that is ahead of us. Yet here in these verses, it illustrates that even like us today, consciously or unconsciously, we can also, like Israel, fail to recognize the goodness that God has done on our behalf. It's not just the story of Israel, it's our story as well. So listen to what the Scripture says in verses 32 through 36. In spite of this, you did not trust in the Lord your God who went ahead of you on your journey in fire by night and in cloud by day to search out places for you, to camp and to show you the way you should go. Look at verse 32 again. In spite of, fa- of the fact of this, that God, this God specifically Yahweh, was going before you and fought for you, He sets these places aside in order to be in that moment for you and bringing you into this territory. But we have to also remember the serious situation that Israel has seen for almost 40 years. Israel did not trust. That's what the verses say. They did not trust. They've been journeying for 40 years. Can you imagine the things that they've seen. They are weary. They're emotionally and they are actually physically exhausted. Spiritually, they probably even have given up to this moment. And it's all of those plus so much more that is blinding them to this moment of how profound it truly is. Yes, they've seen miracles by the hands of Moses, but even miracles do not strengthen and sustain faith completely. They can, in many ways, foster an unhealthy dependence on God. Have you ever witnessed that? Have you ever been a part of that before? Where you've seen something miraculous happen and you couldn't explain it, and it sustained briefly. It strengthened your faith briefly. And then you build this unhealthy dependence on those miracles those unhealthy dependence on what God's hand was up to. It's like those events even in Jesus' own ministry. When He walks around from village to village healing the sick and giving sight to the blind and making the lame walk, yet sometimes it doesn't sustain, it doesn't strengthen faith for those around Him. Because what happens? A lot of people show up and say, show us more. Give us some more. Show us more miracles. Why? Why? so that we will believe. That's an unhealthy dependence. You want the favors of God, but you don't want God Himself. That's the situation that Israel is in. So yes, miracles can foster an unhealthy dependence. They can. They can also strengthen and sustain our faith. We have this tendency even today to put our trust in miracles, in the hand of God and the promises of God, we're no different as the church. We can see God work, and for, yet for some reason we look for just one more miracle. We look for just one more thing that for God to give us. But church, here's a little counsel for all of us. If we're only busying ourselves looking for miracles in the whirlwinds, or waiting for God to show Himself in burning bushes, hear this. If that's our only focus, we're going to miss the same God who causes the sun to rise morning after morning 
We're going to miss the same God who speaks to the Bradford pears outside to bloom. We're going to miss the very same God who sends His eternal Son to restore and redeem His children in creation. This is the same God. The God who acts in and through miraculous waves deserves the same trust and obedience as the God who works in and through the mundane and earthiness of our everyday lives. Don't only trust the God who performs miracles, but the same God who sustains every part of His creation every single day. Because if we fall into a false faith, into trusting miracles over the miracle maker, then we run into the very same situation that you find here in Deuteronomy 1. Look at verses 34 and beyond with me. When the Lord heard what you said... He was angry and solemnly swore, No one from this evil generation shall see the good land I swore to give your ancestors, except Caleb, son of Jephunneh. He will see it, and I will give it him and his descendants the land and set his feet on it, because he followed the Lord wholeheartedly. 37. Because of you, the Lord became angry with me also and said, You, Moses, shall not enter into the land either, but your assistant, Joshua, will enter it. Encourage him, because he will lead Israel to inherit it. And the little ones, what you said would be taken captive, you children who do not yet know good uh, good from bad, they will enter the land. I will give it to them, and they will take possession of it. But as for you, turn around and set out toward the desert along the route to the Red Sea. In other words, the older generation are the ones who continue to rebel again and again and again and again. They're actually setting up a bad paradigm, a bad model of what faithfulness and obedience look like. And God says, you're not going to inherit the promises, but your children will as well as Caleb and Joshua too. And you see, because of this complaining, because of this disobedience, this idolatry, and this false faith of many Israelites, not all, the older generation would not inherit the promised land, but the younger generation would. So here's where I think we conclude this morning. And it's somewhat of an experiment. It's going to require self-reflection, It's going to require self-examination, which is such a vital practice of Lent itself. Remember, we're still in the season of Lent, moving towards our 40 days in which we see the power of God work in and through the resurrected Christ. And so here's the question I ask for you this morning. What do you spend your time facing? I told you at the beginning of the sermon that, Lord willing... It is through the Scriptures that it reorients and resets our face on Christ Himself. That we literally are setting our faces towards Him. What He's up to, what He's doing, and how He is speaking to His people. So what do you spend your time facing? And I mean this literally. What you face... What you face towards something, excuse me, what you face towards says something about what you enjoy, what you love, what you like, and what you desire. I mean this on the everyday level. What are you actually pointing your face toward? 
Because that says something about what you love, what you like, what you enjoy, what you desire. You face toward your families, don't you? You speak to your spouses, to your children. You're facing towards them. And it's those types of things that we say, those are the good things that we face towards. But we also have an inclination to actually face toward the things that are not healthy and beneficial for us. We could spend hours in our day facing our phones. I'm not saying don't put your phones up, don't use them at all, but we can spend an unhealthy amount of time facing our phones. We could even uh, face toward people we intentionally are trying to fight against. We set our face towards them with this evil desire to fight against them instead of to love them. We even set our face towards our own closet sins. We have this tendency to face the things that are actually destroying us. Yet we've heard as the church the very voice of Christ. That's what makes the church the church. We've allegianced ourselves to the Christ who is our King. And He is the one who has given this gentle nudge and has said what? Turn. Turn your faces away and your back on those things and turn your face towards me and what? Follow me. My intention in bringing these examples up is not to cast judgment, but for us to truly examine our daily and weekly habits. What are you facing towards, church? Because that's a priority built into Lent itself. What consumes your time and how can you spend, uh, allow Christ to redeem that time? Let me say it again. What consumes your time? What are you facing towards? And how can you allow Christ to redeem that time? Where is your energy spent facing? And how can you let Christ to give you rest in what you were facing? In our passage this morning, a large portion of Israel spent their time doing this. Glancing. Glancing at the promises and actually glancing at the presence of God. They used their energy to complain. They used their energy to grumble about their situations and their faces were not set on God Himself. Church, let this be the day in which we face towards Christ. That we face towards the very things that should consume our time. And it should also consume our energy. The things that cannot rust and mold, the things that are eternal, that look a whole lot like His kingdom. Face towards Christ and His kingdom this week. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for the goodness of Your grace. We thank You for the reminder that we have this tendency to actually glance towards You because I certainly do it every single day. I can glance towards You, but not actually cast my face towards You. And so Lord, forgive us of glancing instead of facing. And also in those times where we spend an unhealthy amount of time facing the things that we shouldn't be facing. May we take seriously the call that You have given to us, and that is to turn and to follow after You. To set our faces on You and Your redemptive mission. 
that we would be a people of your church in our homes, that we would turn our faces towards our spouses and to remind them that they are greatly loved, and that we would turn our faces towards our children and to remind them and to echo it again day after day that they are loved. And even into our neighborhoods, to care for our neighbors, to not be shut off in our homes because that's to not face our neighbors, but to go out and to actually to face our neighbors and to see how they're doing, how we can meet their needs and to be your church and even to our workplaces. May we do something really hard this week and it's simple as well. May we ask how we can help someone in our workplace. And not just that, but to meet those needs and to do it for no other intention and purpose except because the love of Christ has first contained us and it has completely overwhelmed us. And so, Lord, may we be your church this week. May we set our faces on you and your word and on your love. Father, we ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen.